A man dies and goes to a beautiful place. He opens his eyes and there are lush meadows and waterfalls all around. And off on his right is a man dressed in white, a butler with a towel. What do you want? He says. I'm here to serve, says the butler. Name it and it's yours. I, I, I want, um, how about a drink? Butler says, I'll be right back. He runs and gets a drink, gets two. Says, I'll hold one while you drink the other. And when you're done with that, you can have this. The man likes this. He says, what else? He starts to up his asks. He wants more. He wants things that are concrete. He wants houses, mansions, jewelry, lavish dinners. He wants things abstract, power, recognition, honor. But after a few weeks of this, getting it all, he comes to his senses and wants to try something else. He summons the butler and says, I've been here a while. What can I do for you? Butler says, nothing. No, there must be something, he says. How can I help? What can I do? The butler says, you misunderstand this. This is... This is not about me. This is about you. Um, You cannot serve others. You here, you can only be served. What? Says the man. There's, I can't serve. I can't help. I can't give. What kind of a place is this? This might as well be hell. Sir, says the butler, where did you think you were? If you listen to us talk about heaven, sometimes it sounds like this man's hell. We speak of rest, comfort, recognition for accomplishments while on earth. No obligations, no planning, no pressure, no strenuous effort, no doing something I'm not passionate about, just Rest, comfort, leisure, margin, occasionally laughter when we're embellishing a story of something that happened on earth. But that's not heaven. 
That's retirement. Done the American way. One day, a man came to Jesus and he asked him the same question. Well, almost. He wanted to know how to go to heaven or really how to get heaven into him. He said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Being a first century Jew, he did not mean go to heaven. He meant, how do I get the life of the eternal, the life of God into me? How do I pull heaven into me so I have it now? It, it's important, especially if you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many have heard this parable before? Really, let's, let's see your hand. I think just about everybody's heard the parable. The more you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, the more important it is that we understand the question that frames the entire conversation, including the Good Samaritan. The question, once again, is how do I get the life of God in me? How do I go to heaven? The parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' answer to that question. Why that is important is because in the evangelical church, that's us, by the way, we lead people to Jesus on the basis of that very question. How is it that you can go to heaven? How can you have the life of God? And the answer we give them is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Only none of that is in this passage. This doesn't suggest that believing on Jesus Christ isn't important. It suggests this is what it means to believe. Somehow, in our faith, we have reduced salvation to simply believing and believing to a form of agreement, to a set of statements that are made about God or Jesus Christ. We have led people ourselves to believe that as long as we profess these things are true, we shall be saved. But this conversation is lifting acts of mercy done in compassion up to the level of believing itself. Often we say, remember you are not saved by good works. This passage suggests you might not be saved without them. 
Because part of what it means to be saved is to have your entire life oriented around the ways of Jesus Christ. Are you there? So that's the frame. What does it mean to believe and how do I go to heaven? How do I get God's life in me? Jesus says to the man, well, you're a lawyer. Um, What is written in the law? And how do you read it? He suggests that how we read something is just as important as what we read. And the lawyer says, well, uh, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a remarkable grasp of the Old Testament. It is, it is, it is brilliant. Someone has said there are 613 laws in the Old Testament, and this man, like that, has brought two of them together. One of them from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your body. And the other is from Leviticus chapter 19, It's the holiness code which some people say was not even written until the years of exile, which is in the seven... This is hundreds of years after the Deuteronomy passage. It says, Do not hold a grudge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. This man has reached into two passages from 613 laws and he has brought them together like that, suggesting that the two are not really separate. They are not two different commandments. They are two sides of the same commandment. It suggests that to truly love the Lord our God, we must learn how to love our neighbor as ourself. Sometimes we separate these. We say to ourselves, I'm pretty good at loving God, it's people I can't stand. So I'm working on loving people as much as I love God. But if these are two sides of the same commandment, the truth is 
You already love God only as much as you love your neighbor. It's your neighbor who shows you how much you love God. Anything more than that is self-talk. Now the man, if he were smart, would have left it at that. He got the answer right. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Now go do this. And you will live. Remember the question. What must I do to live? Go do this. And you will live. Do what? Love God with everything. Love your neighbor like yourself. The man says, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes into a parable. He says, There was... There was a man, stranger, walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The lawyer would have known the road. It, it, was, it was famous in those days. This is where a lot of the um, other robberies took place. We, in, in our town, we speak of streets that you don't walk down at night because we say that too much can happen there. This is that street in Jesus' day, you don't go here. So the guy is walking down this road that you don't go down, and he is jumped by a band of robbers. They beat him up, they strip him, and they leave him for dead. It's important at this point in the parable, I think, that we not load into this agendas of our own. We know nothing about this guy. We don't know if he is a minority. We don't know if he is poor. We don't know if he is a derelict. We don't know if, if he is deserving this. We don't know anything about this guy. We just know that he was walking down the road and then because of the evil in someone else, his life changed. Jesus said there were two other men that were walking by. One was a priest, one was a Levite, both of them religious figures in the Jewish tradition, both held in high regard. He said they went down the road, they both looked, both saw the man, both crossed over on the other side of the road. And went on by. At this point in the story, we are only left to our imagination. We, we don't know why they went by. Did they think that it wasn't going to help? Did they think that maybe he deserved it? Did they think maybe there wasn't time? Did they think, well, someone else is going to do this? Did they think, well, he's probably got a cell phone? Nobody knows 
uh, what they were thinking. All we know is that when they saw him, they kept going. Then said Jesus, there was a Samaritan. And when the Jew heard it, he would have frowned. Jews hated Samaritans. Sometimes they were taught as children that hell was hotter for Samaritans. I've seen them. I've seen the sayings. One of them said, if a Samaritan woman is in labor and it looks like she won't survive, don't go next door to help her. Maybe two of them will die. We don't know of an ethnic hatred like the Jews and the Samaritans in the first century. Jesus deliberately chooses a character that the Jewish man would have chafed when he heard it and said, this man too was walking down the road when he looked and saw the man who was beaten. Only he went over next to him, got down and bandaged his wounds and then lifted him onto his own donkey and rode him into town, spent the night with him at the inn. And in the morning, when he'd reached his limitations, he said to the innkeeper, here's some money for you to finish taking care of this man. Do whatever it takes. And uh, when I come back, if I owe you more, I will pay you. Then Jesus says, Now which of the three was the neighbor? And if you're listening, the question has just changed. The question the lawyer asked was, who is my neighbor? In other words, who qualifies for my help? Who's in the circle? There was an argument in Jesus' day between two prominent teachers. One of them said, every Jew is your neighbor. Another teacher said, no, no, only the religious Jews are your neighbor. So there's this argument about who qualifies for our care. That's the question the lawyer is asking. Jesus changes the question to which of these people was the neighbor. The question is not who is your neighbor. The question is do you have the disposition of a neighbor? Who are you a neighbor to? If you have the heart of the Samaritan, the world is your neighbor. It's not about who deserves it. 
It's about what spirit you are of. Let the record show that at the end of the conversation, this is Jesus' answer to how I have eternal life. The hero in the story is not someone who believes the right stuff. It's someone who is outside of our tribe. But they have the heart of Jesus in them. He is the one who loves his neighbor like himself. Are you there? How do we cross the road? I won't belabor this. What I did was, I just stepped back and looked at the actions of the Samaritan and tried to distill it into a few movements. One of those, I think, is pretty obvious. It says, when he looked and saw him, he went over next to him. This I'm calling resonance. There is something to be said about going next to someone who is in crisis and just being with them. Just be there. Resonance is all about getting over the fear of not knowing what to say. And just sitting next to someone in crisis silently. It isn't about counseling. It's not about fixing. We're not trying to get them over it. We're, we're not necessarily reading scripture. We're not filling the room with prayers. We're just sitting next to someone who is suffering because of what happened to them, not what they did, but what someone did to them, and just embracing it, absorbing it. After that, the Samaritan gets down in 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 and bandages the wounds. He stops the bleeding. He alleviates the pain. He doesn't pay someone to do it. He uses what he has in order to deal with the problem. This, I guess I'm calling relief. This is simply giving someone something proportionate to the need. Specific, immediate. Now, sometimes we say, I'll pray for you. When we shouldn't, we should just bandage the wounds. I don't know how. Do anything. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Just do it. It's about not second-guessing ourselves, not 
thinking someone else will do it. After this, he pays the innkeeper and says, as long as it takes and as much as it costs, I got it. Goal here is to get him back on his feet. It's to give him some freedom, some agency again. So he's not dependent like this. Sometimes, people, justice does not mean putting those robbers away. You don't know who they are. The only thing you can do is deal with what's in front of you. So justice in this instance is giving the man back as much as you can of what he once had. Even if it's not the same thing. Some things are irreplaceable. But we ask ourselves, what can we give them to set them free? So they are not dependent like this forever. I feel like I'm going too long with you guys. I, um, what worries me about compassion in our city is that we have separated these three and we have focused primarily on the middle one, which is relief. There's a number of us who like to give to things or we like to fix problems. It's called solutionism. Everything must have a solution. And when one is not self-evident, it is so tempting to just disengage. I see this in every profession. I watch our people go through the medical profession and they just hand them from one specialist to another till you just want to scream and say, <laughs> the answer here is not medical. We gave up on that a long time ago, brother. The answer is someone just being present with this person. There are some things only presence can solve. And not all of our Relief leads to restoration. There's a lot of people who live on relief. I, don't, I think they've lost sight of what it means to be free and full again. And why should we do this? Well, a number of reasons. One is because Jesus himself says this is just as important as believing. It is what it means to believe. Well, now that you've memorized the creed, go across the street to that fellow. Figure something out. The other reason is because when we do it, 
we are sometimes helping ourselves. The roles may be switched someday. And the people in need today may have the upper hand. We may be the stranger. There's a children's book by Tommy DePaulo called Now One Foot, Now the Other. Have you heard this? Good. I'm going to tell it quickly. Bobby is a toddler. He's two, three years old. Lives at home with his mom and dad and his grandfather, Robert, named after him, also lives at home. Bobby's favorite game is to take his blocks and stack them on top of the other. He builds himself a tower, and when he gets to the top, far as he can reach, he always saves the elephant block. It's a block with an elephant on the side of it. He stretches and puts it on top. Grandfather help him do that, and then once the tower is built, the grandfather pretends to sneeze and pushes the blocks over. Bobby laughs, and he gets busy rebuilding the tower. This goes on for hours, weeks in young Bobby's life, till one day Bobby's five years old. He comes home from kindergarten, and his grandfather's not there. Mother says he's in the hospital, says he's not feeling well. He, he'll be back someday. Well, it's several days. It's a couple of weeks. And finally, grandfather comes back into the house and he sits in the living room. And um, he's catatonic. He doesn't recognize what's happening all around him. The noise, he then receives it. Bobby finally goes back to the room, gets his blocks, and starts stacking the blocks. And when he goes to put the elephant block on top for the first time, he hears his grandfather say, mumble, elephant, block. Bobby puts the block on top, looks at his grandfather, and he fakes a sneeze. He goes, <sighs> Bobby smiles and pushes them over. Now he knows his grandfather will be all right. couple weeks goes by. Grandfather learns a couple more words. Not well, but he still can't walk. And the day comes when the father gets grandfather out of the chair, but he's afraid. Bobby, now five, gets behind the grandfather until his knees are folded into his grandpa's. He's going to teach him to walk. He says, first one step, 
now the other, now one step, now the other. It was Grandpa who taught Bobby to walk. But now is Bobby teaching his grandpa to walk. And it's funny how sometimes the roles are reversed. Everyone in this room right now feels like we have a lot of agency, a lot of freedom, and we have plenty of resources. And we do today. But sometimes the people that we are called to help, the ones on the other side of the road, may rise up and help one of us.